You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. So now, as I said, the, the, the title of this message is The Birth of an Unlikely Leader, but really the, 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 the title of our whole series, this whole series through the book of 1 Samuel, we're calling this series Priest, Prophet, and Politicians, because in this series, uh, the, the book opens up with, with the family of a priest by the name of Eli, but then quickly it shifts to a prophet. Uh, who, 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 will, who will be used by God to lead the people. And of course, that's the prophet Samuel. But then from there, then we meet the politicians. We meet the kings that will rule over the people. The first king that we meet is King Saul. Uh, and in many ways, King Saul was the people's choice to be king. But then we meet King David. And in many ways, David was, was God's choice to be king. Now, by the way, uh, actually, that's kind of the, the, the way you would outline the book of 1 Samuel. The way you would outline the book of 1 Samuel is based on those characters I just mentioned. Because the book flows from Eli, then it goes to Samuel, then it goes to Saul, and then it goes to King David. So it's kind of the outline of the book. And something else about this book is, is that it's a transitional book, meaning a, a transition in power. This book uh, is, is a transition that goes from a, from a theocracy where God reigns over the people, and then it goes to a monarchy where a politician, where a king is reigning over the people. In fact, in this book, we're going to see that, that the people no longer want God to rule over them. Now they want a politician. They want a king to rule over them. And so in some ways, this is a cautionary tale. It's, it serves as a warning for us to be careful for what we wish for. You know, uh, years back, Edward Everett Hale uh, was, was serving as the chaplain for the United States Senate. Now, this was back in the days of Abraham Lincoln. And in fact, Hale was the one who stood up and prayed for one hour and 57 minutes before uh, Lincoln came up and gave a two-minute speech known as the Gettysburg Address. Now, on one occasion, a reporter asked Hale, he said, he said do you pray for the senators? And, and, and Hale smiled and said, he said, nope, I took one look at them and decided I need to pray for the people. I need to pray for this country. Be careful what you wish for. So now with that, as we, as we now pick it up in chapter one, the first eight verses of this chapter, we see that these were desperate times spiritually, politically, and individually. And so in verse one, it says, now there's a certain man of Ramathiam, uh, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, not Tofu, Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship God and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where, two, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah had sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though she had, uh, the, I'm sorry, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Oh, why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now as we look at this chapter, uh, understanding the, 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 the history, understanding the time period that this was taking place is helpful. 
In fact, in many ways, uh, the book of 1 Samuel was happening in what was called the days of the judges. You read about that in the book of Judges. Now, uh, the, the book of Judges, by the way, covers a 300-year span, a 300-year period of time where, where there was intermittent warfare where the nation of Israel was facing a constant cycle of invasions and, and attacks that then would be followed by famine. And, and then a, a judge would emerge on the scene, a leader would emerge on the scene who was called by God to rescue God's people. Then inevitably, this leader would lead the people back to the Lord. They would repent, they'd turn back to the Lord, and then there would be a time of temporary peace. But then during that time of temporary peace, the people's guard went down, and, 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 and lo and behold, they would start to sin again, and then it would re repeat the whole process over and over. In fact, commentators call this the sin cycle, because they would sin, they, 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 they would get into all this stuff, and then they'd reap the consequences of their sin, which was they would be invaded, they would be attacked, and then they would cry out, they would repent, they would turn to the Lord, but then they would repeat the process over and over and over, the sin cycle. And so it was during this time period that, that, that first Samuel was written. In fact, Samuel is considered the last of the judges. And, and so it, really this was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. In fact, that phrase was one of the key phrases in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, one of the phrases that's repeated over and over is that it says the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Not what was right in God's eyes, what was right in their own eyes. Now that, by the way, explains the opening of this chapter. As it tells us that this man named Elkanah, who's going to become the father of, of, of Samuel, it tells us that Elkanah had two wives. Now, by the way, the Bible was not condoning this sort of thing. The Bible wasn't promoting polygamy. It's just acknowledging it. It's, it, it's, it's using it as an illustration. An illustration of what? An illustration that the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes. Reminds me of the time that Mark Twain was de debating with a friend of his who was a Mormon. Now, by the way, this was back when, when Mormonism very clearly was promoting polygamy. And so his friend uh, said, said, you know what, Mark, show me just one verse in the Bible that says I cannot have more than one wife. Mark Twain smiled and said, well, the Bible says a man cannot serve two masters. <laughs> well, Elkanah had two masters, I mean two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. Now, evidently, Hannah was his first wife, uh, but, but she, was, she was barren. That is, she was unable to have children. Now, in those days, if, if your wife was barren, one of the things that, that people would do to sort of take matters into their own hands, to sort of deal with this themselves, is they would get a surrogate. And so a man would have a wife for love, but then he'd have a wife just for having children, just for bearing children, a surrogate, if you would. So that's what's happening here. Again, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were taking matters into their own hands. And this just reminds us that whenever we do what's right in our own eyes, when we take matters into our own hands, chances are we didn't make things better, we made them worse. And that's what's happening here. It's now we see that there's this rivalry be between these, these two women that are now fighting for the affection and the attention of the same man. Now, by the way, in that day, it was also believed that if you were unable to have children, then that meant that you were cursed by God. In fact, the rabbis uh, taught that there were seven categories of people that would not go to heaven. 
Seven categories of people that were cursed. Now the top two on that list was number one, a Jewish man who did not have a wife, and number two, a Jewish couple who were unable to have children. And so Hannah was, was under this, 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 this label, this, this stigma of being child, childless. I mean, much like being under the label of, of, of an adulteress. It's, it's, it's as if she was branded with a scarlet letter. Now, to make matters worse, her rival, as she's called, Penina, by the way, Penina is a name that means ruby, but it can also be translated fer fertile. Could have called her fertile myrtle. I mean, she's just popping them out left and right. She's having babies everywhere. And not only that, she's rubbing it in. She, she's rubbing it in every chance that she gets. Now, listen, unfortunately, there are some of you that, that might know the pain of this. They might know the emotional pain of this. I say that because it, it's estimated that one out of every five married women uh, in America are, are unable to get pregnant after a year of trying. In fact, it's estimated that, that 48 and a half million couples experience infertility. And so that means that, that, that many of you might know the, the, the desperation. You might know the, 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 the feeling of being willing to do just about anything and everything you can to try to have a child. In fact, it's estimated that, that couples seeking infertility uh, treatment will spend up to $60,000. And so this is where Hannah is. Hannah is, is a desperate woman. Who, who desperately wants to be a mother, and yet she's living in desperate times, both spiritually and politically. And then there's uh, perhaps the most difficult Bible verse for anybody who, who might be struggling to get pregnant. The most difficult Bible verse would be at the end of verse 5, where it says that the Lord had closed her womb. And then just to rub it in, salt to the injury, verse 6 says the same thing. The Lord had closed her womb. Now that's a difficult verse. Now from that difficult verse, however, I find three observations. Observation number one is that Hannah did nothing to close her womb. This had nothing to do with anything that Hannah had done. In other words, it wasn't because of some kind of sin that she committed that her womb was closed. In other words, it wasn't because of, of, of her lifestyle before she was married or anything like that. Notice, it does not say that Hannah closed her womb. It says God closed her womb. It had nothing to do with what she had done. It had something to do with what God was doing. Number two, observation number two, is, is that it, this reminds us that God was still in control. In these out-of-control times when, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, in this time of spiritual anarchy, we see that God was still on the throne. God was still in control. He even opens and closes the womb as he wills. And then observation number three is that this reminds us that God had a plan. Because ultimately we see that she gets pregnant. She has a son named Samuel. In fact, later on she has, she has more children than that. But we see that God had a plan. But not only do we see that God had a plan uh, for, for Hannah to have a baby, God had a plan for Hannah's baby. In fact, ultimately, God had a plan for the nation of Israel. God's plan was bigger than just Hannah. And so ultimately, we see that, that this had nothing to do with something that Hannah had done. Number two, it, 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 it reminds us that God's in control. God is still on the throne. And number three, God has a plan. And now with that, as we pick it up in verse 9, down to the end of the chapter, 
We, we see a, a, a woman in despair who meets a man, a, 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 a leader, who does not care. Verse 9. And after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and, and, and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, uh, of host, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant, but, but, but I, your servant, if, if you give me a son, then I will give him back to the Lord all the days of, of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, this is what is known as the Nazarite vow. Verse 12, and she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you, will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And then she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now we'll pause here. And so we kind of put, we look at this, and, and, and one of the interesting features about this book is, is that it opens in prayer. We notice in verse 10, it says that, 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 that she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And so this book opens in prayer, but it also closes in prayer. In fact, we see that 30 times the word prayer is used from the opening chapter to the closing chapter. In other words, the book of 1 Samuel, in many ways, is a book of prayer. It's a prayer book, as prayer is being poured out to the Lord. And so it says here that she prayed. She, it says that she, she, she was deeply distressed and she prayed. That phrase, deeply distressed, the, the Hebrew word here is mara. It, it means sadness. It means bitterness. And so she was pouring that out. She, she was pouring out the distress. She was pouring out the sadness. She was pouring out the bitterness that was in her heart. She was pouring it out to the Lord. Even as it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Or as it says in the International Standard Version, throw all your worry on him because he cares for you. And this is what Hannah was doing. She was taking all that anxiety, all that worry, all that distress, all of the bitterness that was in her heart, and she was casting it on the Lord. Luke 18 verse 1 says, Men ought to always pray and not lose heart. In other words, the key to not losing heart is to pour out your heart in prayer. And so Hannah's pouring out her heart in prayer, but meanwhile, Eli the priest had a judgmental heart. And we're going to see that Eli was, was the outgoing leader. He's on his way out, and next week we'll discover why that is. But for now, we get a glimpse of his heart. You know, maybe there was a time in Eli's life where, where he had a heart for the Lord. Maybe he had a heart of compassion, a, a, a heart of mercy. But, but his once tender heart has now become a calloused heart. It's become a judgmental heart. He sees her mouth moving, but there's no words coming out of it, so he just assumes that without even knowing anything about her that she must be drunk. And so he, he's, he's unable to hear her words, but God was able to hear her heart. 
You know, it's been well said that in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than it is to have words without a heart. And, you know, there, you know there, there's some people who, who can pray these, 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 these poignant, uh, these, these, these beautiful prayers. Publicly, they, just, they, they pray these prayers that are just poignant, and, 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 and yet there's no heart in it. And in Hannah's case, there were no words, but her heart was in it. And God heard her heart. And now in verse 19, down to the end of the chapter, it says, they, they, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Then the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vows. In other words, it's been one year's time from now. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, now by the way, that would be uh, about the age of three or four years old. So she said, as soon as the child is weaned, I will, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now the active phrase here is that he will dwell there forever. Now yeah, listen, she, she's bringing her son to the temple. She's going to dedicate her son to the Lord at the temple. And, and, and next week we're doing a baby dedication. The only difference is that she brought her son and he was now going to dwell at the temple forever. The difference is you're going to bring yours back home. <laughs> Verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you but, and, and wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until, until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they went and, and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I, that, that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, that would be Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. So now we put this all together. What we have is, 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 is this woman, Hannah, who, who out of desperation cries out to God. And out of desperation, she makes a vow to God. And she vows, she says, Lord, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him back to you that he may serve you the rest of his life. And so when he was weaned, that is when he was three years old, she brings him to the temple and she dedicates her son. Now I want to read verses 27 and 28 again, but this time from a different translation called the, the New Century Version. In the New Century Version, it says, I prayed for this child and the Lord answered my prayer and gave him to me. Now I give him back to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord all of his life. So she brings her son Samuel, three years old, to the temple. She gives him to the priest Eli. She dedicates him to the Lord's work, and he stays there at the temple from that point on. And from this point on, Samuel now is going to serve as the prophet of Israel. He'll become the leader of the land of Israel. And in many ways, Samuel's story kind of reminds me of, of, of the story of, of Pastor Chuck Smith when, when Pastor Chuck was born. Now, Chuck Smith was born back in 1927, and when he was born, his, his sister Virginia had almost died of meningitis. And so his mother, Maud, prayed and said, Lord, if you give my little girl back to me, then I will give you my life, and I will serve you and, and do whatever you want me to do for the rest of my life. Well, two, two months later, Chuck was born. So then she prayed again, and she says, Lord, through my son, Chuck Smith, I will fulfill my vow to you. 
And so she dedicated the raising of her son to God at that point on. And so she, 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 she started teaching him the Bible at a very early age. In fact, it's said that Pastor Chuck, when he was four years old, maybe five years old, was able to read the entire Bible. Some of you have four-year-olds that can't even get out of diapers, and he's reading the book of Revelation. And when he was 14 years old, he, he made a, a personal commitment to Christ. And then finally, as he's getting ready to graduate high school, he, he's, he's hoping to become a doctor. He, he's planning on going to, to, to USC and then going to medical school. But after high school, he went off to summer camp. And, and, and at camp, he discovered that God had a call on his life for the ministry. So he changed his plans and no longer was he going to go to medical school. He now went to Bible college. He graduates Bible college. He gets ordained. He gets assigned to, to pastor a small struggling church. In fact, he ended up pastoring several small struggling churches until finally he came to a small, tiny little church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. And then a little thing called the Jesus Movement broke out where, where hundreds of thousands of, of young people called hippies are, are giving their lives to Christ, and many of them are starting to come to Calvary Chapel. And, and in just a couple of months' time, there are thousands of, of these young people at his church. And now to this day, there are some 2,000 Calvary Chapels around the world. Now what's interesting is, is that Chuck didn't, didn't learn about his mother's vow that she had made until she was on her deathbed. As she was dying, she finally told him that she made this prayer. She made this vow to the Lord to dedicate Chuck to the Lord for the Lord's purposes. And in many ways, that's what is happening with Samuel. His mother, Hannah, is dedicating him to the Lord. And she prays. And so now in chapter 2, we have her prayer. We'll, we'll read it in, in its entirety. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. And my horn is exalted in the Lord. My, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There, there, there is none besides you. There is no other rock like our God. Talk no more uh, so very proudly. Let not, let, not the arrogant come, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is God of, of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble uh, bind on the earth. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but, but she who has many children is forlorn. Gee, I wonder who she's talking about. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit the seat of honor. For, for, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in, into, into pieces. Against them he, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed." Now, what's interesting, by the way, is, is when you read Hannah's prayer and then compare her prayer to the prayer that Mary, the mother of Jesus, prayed later on in Luke chapter 1, you see a lot of similarities. Uh, that, that prayer that Mary prayed is often called Mary's Magnificat because she, she, she magnified the Lord. In fact, in many ways, it seems that, that Mary was actually quoting some of Hannah's prayer when Mary had prayed. For example, uh, the, the opening of this prayer in, in chapter 2, verse 1, where she says, My heart exults in the Lord. And in the same way, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, when Mary prayed, she says, My heart exalts the Lord or, or magnifies the Lord. 
And so in many ways, it seems that, that Hannah, uh, by, by, in, in giving her son to God, uh, was, was foreshadowing the day that God would give his son to us. And so Samuel was called to, to be God's representative on earth to man, whereas Jesus was God who became a man and walked the earth. Something that's interesting about this prayer is the last line at the end of verse 10, where it says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and, and, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, by the way, the New American Standard, instead of saying strength to his king, it says strength to his anointed. And then he will exalt the horn of his anointed. This word anointed or, or king, it's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is translated Messiah. In fact, this is the very first reference in the entire Bible to the Messiah. The very first time that the Messiah is ever talked about is right here in Hannah's prayer. And so Hannah's prayer is literally a prophecy proclaiming that one day a king is going to come who's going to be the Mashiach, who's going to be the Messiah, who's going to be the Savior. In fact, this verse right here is the very thing that sparked a yearning in the hearts of the Jewish people, uh, a longing for a deliverer, a longing for a rescuer, a longing for a savior that they would call the Mashiach, that they would call the Messiah. Her prayer was literally a prophecy about Jesus. It's literally a reminder that as she gave her son to God, God gave his son to us. And so now verse 11, we see that not only did Hannah have a prayer, but God had a plan. Verse 11, And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Samuel is at the temple. He's ministering to the Lord. It's a new chapter in his life, and it's also a new chapter in the lives of the nation of Israel. And so what we see is, is that God was raising a new generation of leadership. Eli and, and, and his priesthood were on their way out, and Samuel was on his way in. And it all started with a desperate woman in desperate times who made a desperate vow and said, God, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him. I will give him back to you. Whereas she said at the end of chapter 1, verse 28, she says, I have lent him to the Lord. Now, when we read that, when it says, we, you know, I have lent him to the Lord, we read it as if it's saying, you know what? She's going to let God borrow her son for a little while. It's okay, you, you can have him. You can borrow him for a little while. But this word lent, what's interesting, the, the Hebrew word is sha'al. It, it, it speaks of something that has been set apart to be sacred. It speaks of something that's been, been set apart for God to use, for the purpose of God. In other words, it's saying that, that, that she gave her only son to be set apart for God. And again, it's foreshadowing the day that God will give his only begotten son to be set apart for us. Again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so Hannah gave up her son because ultimately she knew that God had a plan for his life. And so as hard as it was, she knew that, that in order for Samuel to fulfill the call on his life, she knew that someone else, other than her, someone else was going to have to raise him. Now, she was able to raise him until he was weaned, but that's as far as she could take him. Eli was going to have to take him the rest of the way. And so we see that the next leader of Israel was, was really an unlikely leader at all. 
So you think about it, Samuel wasn't born into, into the home of a powerful political leader so that he could be raised to become a powerful political leader himself. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't even born into, into a priestly family where he could inherit the priesthood, where he could be a successor and, and be the next in line. No, he was adopted into a priestly home. And we think of adoption. You know, sometimes we hear about these, these, these young mothers who, who maybe give up their baby in hopes of a better life for their baby. You know, maybe they're in a situation where, where they know maybe because of their age or because of their financial situation or because of the stage of life that they're in at the moment, they just know and understand they will not be able to provide the kind of life that their baby deserves. So they give them up. They, 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 they put them up for adoption, hoping that someone else could give them the life that they cannot. But in Hannah's case... When she dropped her baby off at the temple to be, to be raised by Eli, it wasn't because, because she couldn't raise him herself. It wasn't because he wasn't going to be raised in, 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 a, in, in a home where, 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 where she could be provided for or he could be provided for. It wasn't because she, he wasn't going to be raised in a, in a loving home. It wasn't because he wasn't going to be raised in a good home. It was because he needed to be raised in God's home. He needed to be raised in the temple because God had a plan. And so she understood God had a plan for Samuel. And listen, the truth of the matter is God has a plan for your baby. And God has a plan for you. The truth of the matter is that it doesn't really matter what kind of home you were raised in. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a good home or in a broken home. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a two-parent home or in a single-parent home. It doesn't even matter if you were raised in a series of foster homes. The truth of the matter is that you are here because God wants you and God loves you and God has a plan for you. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, it says, But before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And so God's telling Jeremiah, look, when you're in the womb, I knew you. Not only did I know you, I appointed you while you're in the womb to be a prophet for the nations. That word appointed, it's an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word nathan. Not only is it translated appointed, it can be translated ordained. When did he get his ordination? Well, it wasn't after he graduated Bible college. It wasn't after he graduated seminary. I mean seminary. It was in the womb. He was ordained before he was born. Now, what's interesting about this word nathan, as it's translated appointed or ordained, it can also be translated, listen to it, to lend. In other words, it's a Hebrew synonym for the same word that Hannah used when she says, I have lent him to the Lord. This was all about the plan and the purpose of God. In the same way, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter what you were born into. What matters is that you're here because God has a plan. I know that to be true in my life. Look, you know my story because I share it every week. But you know, you know that I, I, I grew up in a, in, in a broken home. I was what you might call an unwanted pregnancy. You know, my, my mom and dad, they, they met at a party. Uh, he, he was in the Air Force. She was a college student. It was supposed to be a one-night stand. But then I came along. And because they got pregnant, uh, they decided to do the quote-unquote right thing, which was get married. They didn't want to get married. They didn't even know each other. It was a one-night stand. But they get married, but soon uh, the, the right thing was short-lived, and they get divorced when I was three years old. In fact, it was on my third birthday when my dad walked out, never to return. And as many of you know, he ended up committing suicide later on. 
And as you can only imagine, right, I mean, this turned my mother's world uh, upside down. Because now, all of a sudden, overnight, she is now a single mother uh, who, who couldn't even finish college, and she's struggling to make both ends meet. In fact, an oft-heard uh, refrain and, and phrase that I would hear repeated over and over again, in fact, I'd hear it shouted and yelled at me over and over again, was, you ruined my life. I would hear, I wish you were never born. And as many of you know, from the ages of four years old to 15 years old, I was bounced in and out of 20 different foster homes. But, but when I was seven years old, my mom had reached her tipping point, and she dropped me off at the doorstep of my grandparents in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, and, and so right there in, in, in front of me, she starts telling them about, about how fed up she is with me. She just can't take it anymore, and she just can't do it anymore. Now, my grandparents, who, who, are, who are devout Catholics, for whatever reason, chose that moment to confront her about the numerous abortions that she had had at this point. Now listen, at seven years old, I didn't know what an abortion was, but I did understand her response. I did understand what she replied with as she shouted at them and she said, she said, there's no way I could have another child right now. She says, I'm too poor. Everything is against me. This whole world is out to get me. She said, you know what? I wished I never had Paul. She said, if, if abortion was legal in 1969, I would have aborted Paul. Now I might have been an unwanted pregnancy, but I'm here to tell you I was wanted by God. And I'm here to tell you that you are wanted by God. That just as God had a plan for me, just as God had a plan for Samuel, God has a plan for you. And so just as Samuel was adopted into this priestly home because God had a plan for Samuel, I'm here to tell you that you and I have been adopted into the family of God because God has a plan for you. Listen to this. Romans 8, 14 and 15. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You were planned before the foundations of the earth because God has a purpose for you, just as he has a purpose for Samuel. Amen? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are in control. That in this very, very out of control world, more out of control now than it's ever been before, you still sit on the throne. And we thank you that the God who was in control in Hannah's day is the same God in control of our day. And as you had a plan for her and a plan for Samuel, you've got a plan for us. You know, maybe you've come this morning and maybe you've wondered that very question, why am I here? Maybe you have parents like me that, that didn't actually want you. I'm here to tell you, God wants you. This is why you're here. In fact, it might be why you showed up this morning. It might be the very reason you came today. Maybe God brought you here today so that you would hear from him, he has a plan for you, that you were designed. He has a purpose for you. He loves you and he wants to use you. And all you've got to do to enter into that plan is choose him. Choose a relationship with him. Choose to kind of walk away from whatever it is you're living now and live for him. If you want to do that, just pray with me. Lord, I give my life to you. I want to surrender my plans to you. I want to exchange the plan for my life and receive your plan for my life. So Lord, I ask you to come into my life. Jesus, I ask you to, to save me, to forgive me of any sins I might have committed. Uh, cleanse me of all the things that have been done to me. Change me from the inside out. 
And then send me out. Let me live the plan that you have for me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.